All right. Go back to our to the book of Exodus, back to our series, our study on the tabernacle. We we kind of started off our study in the tabernacle. We spent two hours looking at what subject? Typology, right? Okay. And we kind of came to a conclusion, at least what we're going to try to do, is that we feel, I shouldn't say we, I feel that the only way to ever officially, dogmatically declare something to be a type in the Old Testament is I need something in the New Testament that specifically declares it to be a type and offers its interpretation of said type, right? Other than that, it's just wild speculation, okay? So that's, that's my... My, my viewpoint, I know most people, even, even Schofield, who claims that position, violates it within seconds. So I, even people who, who would agree with me don't agree with me because they immediately go to the opposite direction. And, and I, I, I don't understand why we continue to do it, but it's a problem in the evangelical world. I mean, they're similar concepts. I mean, I mean, a shadow, I mean, even, even if you're going to say this is a shadow of this, I still need something in the New Testament to tell me that was a shadow of this. I've got to have something in the New Testament that tells me it was a type, whatever word we want to use, type, shadow, what, we've got to have something, right? We've got to have something. If not, we're just making it up, right? We, could, we can look at the life of Joseph and go, wow, there's a lot of similarities between Joseph and, say, Christ, Right? That's one thing to say there's similarities and then point out said similarities. It's another thing to stand in front of the pulpit like pastors do all across the United States of America and say, Joseph was an Old Testament picture of Christ. He was a type of, oh, no, wait a minute, where do you get this? And then we just start drawing correlations. I'm not going to, there's no way in the world I'm going to make such a dogmatic assertion. What I'm going to say is, hey, have you ever noticed this? Look at these things about Joseph. Hey, now let's look at these things about Christ. Is that interesting? Yes. Okay. The end. Okay. That's all I can say, right? There's nothing more I can say. But but that's, yeah, those are the kinds of things. So what we're going to do is I I put forth what I believe to be the correct way to approach typology. But as we get into it, we will look at sources that will take a a typological approach to the tabernacle and, and make everything a type. And we will at least consider their viewpoint as a hypothesis, and then we will test it, all right? Now, obviously, we know how I'm going to feel about each test. I'm already going to have a presupposition that it is not. But it does raise this question, and, I, and I'm going to, we'll be repeating this a number of times. If the New Testament does seem to assert to some level that the tabernacle serves as a picture of type in some way, if, we can, if the New Testament seems to assert that, then does that mean every single item in the tabernacle, from measurements to color to cloth to material, does all of it then serve as a type? And that's where the debate is, right? The debate is, well, wait a minute. The New Testament does say or seem to indicate the tabernacle was a picture. So then people feel like they then have a New Testament authority to go back and make it all a picture. The only problem is... For every time you say shittim wood represents this or purple represents this or gold represents this and wood represents this, you're making that up because the New Testament does not do what? Does not explain every single detail. 
So that's where we have to be very, very, very careful. So we spent a lot of time working on that. Then I decided, well, wait a minute. If we're going to jump into the tabernacle, I find it interesting that if you're reading the Bible, in Genesis 3, or in Genesis 3, we have the revelation that God had walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, seemingly to indicate that in some way, shape, or form, he dwelt with them in the garden to some level, right? Then we know that they're cast out, and they're basically, they are kept from ever getting back in, right? Seemingly then that God is not then dwelling with men. In fact, when we get to like Genesis 11, God comes down to see the Tower of Babel, right? It comes down to scatter. Okay, well, wait a minute. That's far different than God dwelling amongst them. And we follow that pattern all the way till we get to Exodus. And then we find a chapter and a verse where God tells Moses to do what? Build me a sanctuary. Everybody remember where that verse is? It's, everyone look for it and find it because we, it's just a key verse to this study. So we're going to, I'm just going to, 25.8. 25.8, everybody look at it, Exodus 25.8. Okay, he tells them to take an offering in verses 1 through 7 and list all the items, everybody see that? And then verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And so to me, when I see that, I stop and go, why? Well, how come? Well, why is, that seems odd, it's just out of the blue, God's like, hey, 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 make me a sanctuary so that I can dwell among them. And then when we keep reading in Exodus, it gets really weird because then he starts giving us all these instructions and then all of a sudden in the middle of the instructions, we have an account, a narrative for a couple of chapters that seems to interrupt the flow of the instructions. And you're like, well, wait a minute. In fact, some would argue you could take those chapters completely out and those texts would flow much smoother and make more sense. But, but it's there. So we determine, and many people believe, that there are a number of chapters there that serve as a parenthesis. Everybody remember the chapters that we listed as a parenthesis? What chapters? 32 to 34, Exodus 32 to 34, we called them a parenthesis. Now, in this parenthesis, a problem is dealt with. And what is that problem? What is the problem dealt with in the, we've already covered two of them. Idolatry. Okay, so within those chapters, they deal with idolatry. And we're referring to idolatry as what kind of a problem? A perpetual problem. So we are looking at a perpetual parentheses, right? A perpetual parentheses as kind of a way of getting to the why and the how of the tabernacle. All right? So if, and we, in fact, we, I have referred to idolatry as a perpetual problem. The perpetual problem of idolatry. Because idolatry runs throughout the entire Bible, does it not? Yes, and we know that, in fact, the first two commandments deal with idolatry. In the New Testament, they're warned about idolatry, 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 idolatry. It's a perpetual problem. Now, typically, when people say, how do I fix my idolatry? We start doing what? What are our go-to solutions to fix our idolatry? 
Read the Bible more. Go to church more. Pray more. Love God more. Get rid of whatever you think is possibly an idol. If it's too much television, get rid of that. If it's this, stop doing that. If you love sports, stop playing sports. Just basically go live in a monastery and all the idolatry will be gone. Because we typically place idolatry where? Outside of ourselves. And I put forth a hypothesis that I know most people may not agree with, that I think the real idol isn't outside of me. I think it's me. I'm the idol. I'm the false god. And all those things that we go get is what? Our worshipers. What do worshipers do? Elevate and exalt something else as being worthy, right? We want all these other things to do what? Exalt us, to please us, to serve us. Everything we want, everything we do, because why do we do those things? They please us. They make us better. We, we, it can be from people. It can be from it can, what all the things that we tend to do. Some people come to church, and church is nothing more. I, I hate to say this is nothing more than a guy, a, a worshiper of them. They come to church for what to take place? For it to benefit them. For it to benefit them, so that they because hey, if they're missing something, what's the current marketing campaign for New Hope Church in Abilene, Texas? Don't live life alone. Don't live, the billboards are all over Abilene. Don't live life alone. In other words, come to church so that you can be in a community, so you can have friends, so you don't have to live your life alone. It's not, hey, don't live your life without God. It's not, no, it's, hey, come to church because you need people. Because see, all the studies right now tell us that one of the major problems facing humans currently is loneliness and isolation. So once you realize that's the problem, then the church simply turns into a way to do what? To meet said problem to make people feel better. And if people come to church to have their needs met and have what they want, guess what they do? They love church. Well, everyone loves church when when what happens? When they get what they want. When they get their needs met, when they're happy, when they like the sermon, oh, then all of a sudden, but when it doesn't go our way, so even we can even take something like church and it really becomes, we see church as our, as the worshiper of us. Hey, worship me, serve me, exalt me, please me. It's a perpetual problem. So what is, the, what is the solution to this perpetual problem? And I believe this perpetual problem goes from Genesis and it goes all the way to the end of Revelation. Now, please note, Genesis starts with God dwelling amongst men and Revelation ends with God dwelling amongst men. In the meantime, there's a major problem, right? It's a perpetual problem of idolatry where we are all walking around like we are God looking for everything in this world to take care of us. And look, you, and, and the only way that you know what will test your level of thinking you're an idol, the minute things don't, are things you don't, you don't get what you want, what you need, what you desire, your reaction to that will demonstrate how much of an idol you really, you've, how much you've placed yourself as a God. Because if we, weren't, if we didn't feel that way, when things didn't go our way, we would, we, how bothered would we be by it? 
we wouldn't be that bothered by it, right? Because the Christian model is what we're, well, what are we supposed to be in regards to ourselves? We're supposed to be dead and deny self. But how quickly, do, we, we don't, we, we may think we're denying ourselves, but we're dead to self as soon as something doesn't go our way, then all of a sudden we get mad because we're the God that we worship. We're the God that we want everyone else in the world to serve. So how, do we, how are we going to then get people with a perpetual problem of idolatry? How are we ever going to have them and God dwell amongst each other ever again? Because most churches, the solution is how to overcome idolatry and five easy steps. Join a small group. Do, do some Bible memory. It's always, it's always based on what? What you do, what you do, what you do, what you do, what you do. All right? But, that, but guess what? I think in this parentheses, we have a story of the perpetual problem, idolatry, yes, and then I think within the parentheses, we have a solution being put forth. And what have we discovered is the solution to this perpetual problem being put forth in the parentheses. I've given you the list. We covered it like three hours on Sunday. All right. So, and Moses serves as kind of the picture of the example, right? And not just serves as a picture. He literally serves in that capacity, does he not? Okay, and what, so what is, what is Moses in this? He mediates for the people, right? Remember, the people are in idolatry, right? They've taken off all their clothes, running around, drinking, running around a golden calf, right? We, talk, we, we, we went through all of that, right? Moses mediates for the people. So what's the solution to our perpetual problem? We need a mediator, all right? We need a mediator. Everyone, now, I'm, for those listening online who participate in the Bible study exercise, you're about to get a big assignment here. So pay close attention. All right, here we go. We need a mediator. Everyone got that down? We need a mediator. Second, we need an advocate. Right? We need a mediator. We need an advocate. Third, we need an intercessor. We need intercession. All right, next. All right, sin has to be judged on something other than me or my perpetual problem will lead into a perpetual punishment, right? So I've got to have someone who can take care of that. that. There's got to be some kind of judgment, all right? Next, I, we need an atonement, all right? Now, here, here's, I'm just going to go ahead and kind of give away the, the plot a little bit here. Those things, we need intercession, a mediator, an advocate, Judgment and atonement, right? I think those were the five. Was there anything else? I don't think there was another one. I don't, I, those are the ones we've got. We need those things. Here's what I want people to do who are going to participate. I need you to see how all of those things happen in and with the tabernacle. How does the tabernacle provide all of those things? Because I think the entire parentheses is setting up the basis and the why and the how of the tabernacle. Moses is first, in a sense, taking care of it in and of himself. But guess what? The people, they need something that's going to last longer than Moses, are they not? They're going to need a perpetual, think of it, we have a perpetual problem, they're going to need a perpetual what? Mediator, a perpetual intercessor, a perpetual sacrifice or a judgment for sin, a perpetual advocate, a perpetual atonement. I am making the argument that the tabernacle is a thing that provides all of this. 
And the solution isn't just necessarily, hey, you guys do something. God's going to have to do something. Does that make sense? I think that that's, that's the way to get to this. So what chapters did we cover on Sunday? So for those listening online, you just need to take all those things that we found true of Moses, and what you need to do is find how all of those things occur in the tabernacle, within the tabernacle, all right? That's a, we'll talk about more of that via podcast, all right? Next, so what chapters did we cover on Sunday? We covered Exodus 32, and we covered 33, all right. I could go back and read everything we have here, but I think we, I think we did pretty good there. I think we did pretty good. So we're going to go to 34. Everybody ready? Exodus 34. That's a long review, but it puts it all in its proper perspective, okay? Chapter 34. All right. Here we go. All right. First, we're just going to start reading some. I'll go back to reading some commentaries on it, and we'll, we'll work our way through this, okay? Here we go. Exodus chapter 34, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee two tables of stone, like unto the first, and I will write upon these tables, and the words that were in the first table, which thou breakest. And be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning unto Mount Sinai, and present thyself there to me at the top of the mount. And no man shall come up with thee, neither let any man be seen throughout all the mountain, uh, mount, neither let the flocks nor herds feed before that mount." And he hewed two tables of stone like unto the first, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up unto Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tables of stone. All right, so basically the law is being repeated, yes? All right, now, we could do a lot with this right now. We're going to, I'm going to see how this... They approach it in this commentary. There's a lot of things I would want to do here, but I'm going to be very careful for now and see how I want to approach this in a minute, all right? So here we go. In Exodus 34, in response to his petition, God grants Moses' uh, request. And remember, uh, what had Moses asked of God in 33? To see his glory, right? Okay, everybody remember that? Okay, I remember, okay, I just want to make sure everybody remembers that. All right, given God's holiness, since Moses is also a sinner, there will have to be a certain precautions taken. Moses will not be able to see God in his full glory, but will be able to behold some of it as described in the terms of being shielded by God's hand and the rock and seeing only the backside of God. Uh, it, it says, in my opinion, it wasn't just what Moses saw that was so exciting for him. It was also what he had heard, okay? And, um, yeah, well, I want to, I want to, I want to look at, okay, we'll go ahead and read verse five, six, and seven here. Not yet, not yet, not yet. For some reason they start here and they want to immediately go back to the other because they're going to connect the previous chapter to five, six, and seven. All right. And you better see why. And the Lord descended in the cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. 
keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and will by no means uh, clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children and the thir- uh, unto the third and to the fourth generation. Now, what's crazy here to me is that is beautiful, but just as this commentary did, as someone pointed out, they yet have mentioned verses one through four where you get the law again, right? They kind of just skipped that part completely, all right? I, I may throw out some ideas. We'll see where they go here, all right? So they, they quote 34, 6 through 7, which we just read, all right? It says, what more encouraging words could Moses hear than that God's, that, than that God's glory was his gracious and compassionate nature? While God must punish sin, his delight and desire is to show compassion to sinners by forgiving them of their sins. Saving sinners is God's preferred work. Judging sinners is his strange work, as they put it. Moses seizes upon the words that revealed God's glory to make a bold request. Now, they're they're just going to move right on. They're just going to skip that first part. They're going to skip that first part. But I will say this. I will say this. They don't do this. I'm going to do this, right? This is very important. What is going to constantly demonstrate to us? What is the thing? What is the very thing that will constantly scream to us that number one, we have a perpetual problem and number two, we need a mediator, we need an advocate, we need an intercessor, we need someone to be judged for our sin, we need an, uh, we need a, an atonement. What, what is going to be the very thing that's going to demonstrate that need over and over and over and over again? The law. So as soon as the law is, in a sense, being restated here, immediately, then what is spoken of? God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's grace. Why? Because whenever the law is mentioned, what is the, what is the next thing we need to hear? We just need to hear that apart from God's mercy and grace, we're going we're, we're gonna to be judged. Right? To me, that's the part that's, they don't, they don't go there. I don't know why they miss that. To me, this is important because this, once again, as soon as the law, whenever the law shows up, if we don't hear of God's mercy and God's grace, then all we're going to hear is of God's condemnation because that's, that's what's going to happen. So they go with this direction. They say that Moses then has a request. Look at Exodus 34, uh, 9. All right. Uh, I'm going to go to verse 8. Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Now, we could ask ourselves. Now, I know this is not part of the text, and I know it's not part of this, but I just, I'm trying to work through all of this to get as many pictures as possible. What, this is, just a, this is just a hypothetical theological question, like if we were in a Bible college or seminary. What should be the number one motivator to worship. Should it be law or should it be mercy and grace? But how, what would we base this on? Off of? Or to act like the 10-year-old in your class, okay? All right. why, why? I know here, because there's a part of me that wants to do this, right? Because the law is mentioned and then immediately once we hear this revelation of God's great character, mercy, grace, and forgiveness, then Moses, in a sense, receives this and what does he do? He worships. No, I'm not saying that this proves it. What is a reflection of the law? Well, I I don't know. I I, I have a hard time that the law leads to worship. I have a hard time with that. 
The law demands worship. I don't think it leads to worship. Right? And I know we're getting into our law and gospel discussion that we've spent now about like 200 hours on. But just think about it. Does the law ever produce anything positive other than condemning and show your guilt? I think the law shows you that you don't worship, right? If you were to look for a scripture that proves what should motivate worship, what, what, what would you look to? What scripture would you look to? By all means, go, go ahead. Y'all can talk amongst one another. See if you can find it. I'll just see. Just find one scripture that you think that would talk about what should motivate worship. Motivate. Yeah, what should motivate it? What should drive it? What do you think? Okay. 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 Now, do you think those verses show what should motivate worship? I mean, they don't. Uh, they don't clear. They don't state. Hey, this is what should motivate your worship, right? Okay, you should. Do we have some scriptures that would support that idea? I well, it, it's not. I, I think we're reading it into it, right? I think we're reading it into it, right? Because if I put forth the idea, hey, what's motivating Moses to worship here? Someone could argue it's the law first. Well, there's bad news with it, right? So I just don't think those verses articulate exactly what's motivating the worship. So what would, do you have anything else that you think would, would show us? I'm not, I'm not arguing that your, your theory may not be right. I'm just saying, I, I, do we have something? What do you think? I'll, I'll throw this out there. I'm not saying it works. I'm not saying it works. But I, I, would, I would at least consider Romans chapter 12, right? I beseech ye, therefore, by the, yeah, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Is that not what he starts? I beseech you based off what? The mercies of God. And then the mercies of God is the what? Because he's beseeching you in the mercies of God, he's beseeching you, he's motivating you because of God's mercy to do what? Nobody knows Romans 12, 1 through 2. To present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your... And reasonable service is translated... Act of worship. Okay, right? Doesn't Romans 12, 1, 2 possibly support my hypotheses here? Everybody look at Romans 12, because I don't want you to think I'm just like misquoting it or making up words. or Yeah, some translations even put the word worship there. How does it begin? The very first verse 1 of Romans 12. In view of God's mercy, the King James, I beseech you therefore. Someone quote Romans 12. Brethren, by the mercies of God. It is God's mercy that he's relying on. Because of God's mercy, what should they do? Present themselves as a 
living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your... Oh, and that's translated in almost every English translation. Spiritual act of worship. What motivates the worship? Mercy. And what, what is worship? Where you put God before you. You exalt God before you. You declare him to be worthy. What's the motivation? His mercy. What, what did Moses just hear? He, he, he has the law and he's even told, God will judge the guilty. He will. Unless what? There's a substitute or a sacrifice, right? Okay, That's, that, we're going to see that over and over and over again, right? But what does he hear? Go back and look at Exodus. Look at the, those verses. What does he hear? Verse 6, Exodus 35, 30, I'm sorry, 34, 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. What does he hear? The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity. Now, by, it, by no means will he uh, clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. May, Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. I think it's the mercy there that motivates it because it was just, the bad news, the law's not going to declare, the law tells you you are supposed to worship because God is worthy. But we will never, just on the basis of law, will worship. I mean, just think about it. If you, if you look at a kid, you put God first. You honor him. You glorify him. You do that. Okay, well, <laughs> yeah, I'm really motivated to do it. And if you don't, you go to hell. Well, that's a, whoa, that's, that's some good motivation, right? That's some good motivation. Now, it's different to be told, hey, God's law tells you to do these things. You're guilty of all these things, and you deserve punishment. But our God is merciful and he's done this, 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 this. He's provided an mediator, an intercessor, an advocate. He carried out a judgment on someone other than you. He provided atonement. That should motivate. That should motivate the worship. I know that's not the central part of this, but we can't just skip that, can we? Okay, or at least I don't think we can, all right? Or maybe anybody else can, all right? But I can't. All right, now, so I'm just going to read this entire paragraph. He's, uh, and if, uh, he makes a bold request. If I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, let, let my Lord go among us, for we are, uh, or, uh, Exodus 34, 9, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm skipping something. I'm going to back up. Uh, what more encouraging words could Moses hear than God's glory was his gracious and compassionate nature? While God must punish sin, his delight, and desire, his delight and desire is to show compassion to sinners, forgiving them of their sins. All right? Moses seizes upon the words that revealed God's glory to make another bold request. Right? And look at verse uh, 9. Look at verse 9, Exodus 34, 9. What request does he make in 9? And he said, if now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us, for it, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thine inheritance. Now, does he deny the people's sin? 
No, but he's requesting based off basically grace or mercy, right? Did he not just get a revelation that God is merciful and gracious? Say, because God is merciful and gracious, because God has request, let Moses reveal these things and see these things, based off this, hey, but where does he want him to be? With them. Now we're getting closer to the whole concept of the tabernacle again, right? And this is all happening in the parentheses. This is all happening in the parentheses. Now, he goes on to say, if now uh, they, I'm going to quote from their, the way they quote it. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord go among us, for we are still, for we are still, I'm sorry, for we are a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us from our inheritance. Now, it's interesting because he almost now sees if God, it's almost like, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to read any too much into this, but Moses almost seems to have, if God is among them, then they can have their sins forgiven. Right? Do you not kind of see that there? It's almost like, hey, if, you're, if you will go with us, we can have our sins forgiven. In other words, the only way for us to have our sins forgiven is we need what? God with us. Now, typically, you would think that wouldn't be the way you would think. You'd be like, no, no, no. Hey, God, you could just go ahead and take a vacation, go far, 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 far away, because if you're close to us, we're going to be consumed. But based off the revelation of God being gracious and merciful, he seems to be like, no, we need you with us to have our sins forgiven. Because he knows the people are what? Are stiff-necked. They're idolatrous. They have a perpetual problem, do they not? Okay, all right. Um, okay, he goes on, uh, let's see here. Uh, and then, so uh, I'll just read that all again. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord go among us, for we are a stiff-necked people. Uh, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us from uh, for your inheritance. Moses requests that God dwells among his people as they make their way to the promised land based upon the revelation of God's glory in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. See, they're, they're saying the reason he's asking this is because of that great revelation he just got of God being merciful and gracious. A manifestation of his glory, Israel's good is God's glory, and thus Moses boldly asks for God to abide with his people. Now, they're going to put forth a hypothesis here. They're going to put forth a hypothesis here, all right? And this is the author speaking. If I understand the rest of chapter 34 correctly, God appears to make a covenant with Israel a second time as a kind of second chance for his people. It is though the first covenant had been nullified by Israel's sin with the golden calf, and thus Moses smashed the first stone tablets to bits. Moses thus returns to the mountaintop once again, spending yet another 40 days and 40 nights without bread or water. Some of the main points of the law, as it was written, given in full, are stated again in Exodus 34, 10 through 28. Do we agree that they're kind of spoken of again in verses 10 through 28? Uh, look at verse 10, and he said, Behold, I make a covenant before all thy, all thy people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord. Heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, whether thou goest, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. But you shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. 
lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and thou go a whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods, and one and one call thee, and thou uh, thou eat of his sacrifice. There's the idea of not eating uh, food offered unto an idol, which is bizarre because then in the New Testament that seems to go away. All right, so then you're that's see where dispensationalism comes into play. This is a different covenant. This is a different dispensation. When you get to the New Testament, does that not go away? Paul's like, hey, you can eat a, a meat offered unto an idol. And they would have been like, no, I can't. You see, that, that, it gets confusing, right? And thou uh, take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go a-whoring after their gods, and make thy sons go a-whoring after their gods. It's, it's interesting that, that it's the women who can get the men <laughs> to, to go after the false god, right? Does that kind of seem what he's putting forth the idea? That's, I just I find that kind of hilarious. He's not like, hey, watch out for your daughters because they'll go following the false gods of the sons. No, the sons will go following the false gods of the women. It's just, all right. Thou shalt make thee no molten god. Is this not a re, kind of a restatement of all the commandments? All right. Um, a, re, a restatement of all of it. Now, we could read. Uh, we could read. Uh, I mean, I, I, I could go through all of this, but we're going to run out of time. All right. Now, in the closing verses, go jump down to verse 29. All right. Now, they, they love to put forth this concept over and over and over. Now, in the closing verses, 29 to 35 of chapter 34, we read once again of the intimate relationship God had with Moses. When Moses came down from the mountain, his face was aglow, and he didn't even know it. The people did. They were even afraid to come near to Moses. Moses called them and spoke to them. When he was finished speaking to them, Moses put a, a veil over his face, not, uh, not to conceal his glowing face, but as Paul informs us, to hide the fading radiance of his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took off his veil, and when he came out of the tent, he put the veil back on. That is the most bizarre, confusing, what in the name of bubblegum is going on. All right? Remember, these chapters are a parenthesis. They already are weird. Agreed? Because see, the con- what's been going on before, prior to this? Instructions on how to build the sanctuary. Then we have this, four, how many chapters? Chapter 32? 33 and 34 are parentheses. 35, we're going to deal with because some, some, I think, put it outside of the parentheses, but we're going to at least look at 35. But please note, I, I, I think I could be wrong here. I could be wrong here. But remember what do I always say? Whenever the text screams at you, hey, there's something going on here that makes no sense. At, at, at any point in the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is there ever a story where someone is talking to God and then when they go talk to the people, they have to put a veil over their face because they're glowing. It is weird. It is confusing. It is absurd to me. It makes no sense. People just read it and, and then they'll turn it into some kind of a sermon somehow, right? But nobody ever stops to go, what is going on? I'm going to I'm, I'm con- maintain this argument over and over and over and over and over again. This, everything in this parentheses is setting up in Moses the tabernacle. And the tabernacle sets up everything that is needed for God to dwell amongst men. 
And everything in the tabernacle will point to the tabernacle that will come, the word that will dwell among us, who is the tabernacle. And in him is the ultimate fulfillment of everything in the tabernacle that will get us to revelation where God will dwell amongst us. So let's go through this. Moses has served in these chapters as a, a mediator, as an advocate, as an intercessor, he has been involved and, and understands and puts forth the idea, someone's going to have to be judged. Something's going to have to be judged. And then an atonement has to be made. And in here, a veil. Now, when we consider the tabernacle, does any idea of a veil come into play in your mind? And what's contained in the Holy of Holies? What else? The glory of God. There's a veil. Why, did, why does there have to be a veil? Sinful man cannot look or see upon a holy God. And that, who, is that a good thing or a bad thing that there's a veil? It's a very good thing if your tent is a couple of minutes away, away from, from it, right? Because as soon as you woke up one morning and walked out to stretch, you'd be dead, right? It's a good thing the bell is there. There's a positive thing there. Now, I'm just saying it's kind of interesting that in this parentheses, we have the account that makes no sense any other way of Moses wearing a veil. But everything Moses is doing here is pointing to the tabernacle itself. It's almost like, I, hey, in the middle of this story where I'm just going to give you all these boring, and I hate to say the word, but th that's how we're going to view it, boring instructions, right? Hey, it's got to be shit on wood, and it's got to be one and a half cubit, and it's got to be four and a half cubits, and it's got to be this, and it's got to be made of gold, and it's got to be this, and it's got to be this. I mean, when you start reading that, you start doing what? I mean, I, I hate to say that, but if we're going to be remotely honest with ourselves, we kind of go, oh, oh, okay, yeah, all right. Or you start reading it like this. Okay, read, read it, read the chapter. Oh, come on. We know we do that in our mind, right? We just start skimming it. Well, not just the net, all, all, those content, all of those just basic information, right? One, cub one cubit, one and a half cubit, this, this, all of that, just... When you read Exodus, all those chapters where they're giving you all of that, those details, do you not have a tendency just to go, it's purple, it's this, it's the white, okay, whatever. I'm saying somehow in the middle of that, in this parentheses, Moses is here and Moses is kind of the personal object lesson of, hey, ladies and gentlemen, what's going on in this tabernacle is of the utmost importance. Because God cannot dwell amongst sinful men unless there is a mediator, an advocate, intercession. Sin has been judged, right? Has been judged. Atonement and a veil. A veil. There's going to have to be a veil. Because if there's not a veil, we're, we're gone. It's over. Now, when you get to Revelation, God's glory, there's not even need for the sun, right? God's glory can be fully manifested. Why? 
Because by that point, all sin has been taken care of, right? Up to that point, even when Jesus came, his glory had to be laid aside and he had to clothe himself in human flesh and take on the role of a servant. Because if he would have came in his full glory, everything would have been annihilated and it would have been disintegrated in his presence. Correct? All right, I, I, think, I think everybody should go, ooh, that's pretty good. Okay. All right, all right, maybe not. Okay, maybe not. I, I think so. Okay, all right. I, I'm just going to go through this quickly. Oh, man, we're not going to have time. All right, here we go. I'm, just go to 35. Go to 35, all right? Just start looking at 35. I'm just going to have to start reading through this. I want to read through the text first and build this, but I'm just going to read it quickly so we kind of get there, all right? So, Uh, This is the second time in two chapters, 33 and 34, that the reader has been told about Moses' unique relationship with God, a relationship that no one else in that age ever experienced. Once again, I'm going to stop here. They want to keep focusing on Moses has this close relationship. I'm going to argue this close relationship was happening because Moses is being put forth as the human example of, of what the tabernacle will serve as, and the tabernacle serves as what is necessary for God to dwell amongst sinful men. And that tabernacle ultimately has to be fulfilled in Christ because Christ must provide all the things the tabernacle provides. But he provides it in a, Hebrews will pick this up, a better way. A better way, because everything the tabernacle did only did things in a temporal way. Does that make sense? All right. Now, let's continue reading. It says, uh, this is the second time in two chapters, 33 and 34, that the reader has been told about Moses' unique relationship with God, a relationship that no one else in that age ever experienced. I believe, this is the author now, the reason will become evident as we continue on into 35. Now, they may come to a different reason why this is happening. I've put forth my reason why it's happening, but I love for you to get two different perspectives so that you can see how right I'm all... Okay, now I'm just joking. All right, so that you have your choice and who you want to believe, okay? All right, here we go, all right? Oh, I gotta move quickly, I gotta move quickly, all right? Um, I believe the reason will become evident as we continue on to Exodus 35. In this chapter, we see Moses and the Israelites commencing work on the tabernacle and its furnishings. Everyone look at 35 and see if you agree that that is true. Look at 35 and see if you believe that to be true. Yeah, that they commence the work on the tabernacle. All right. Now, please note, this to me means 35 is not part of the parentheses. Right? Okay? 32 to 34 is the parentheses. There's a part of me that wants to leave 35 out of this discussion. They, because remember, I I read from two different sources. I took the phrase uh, perpetual parentheses from a sermon that has nothing to do with this. It was about Calvin and idolatry, right? They just, so I just, I just borrowed that phrase, ripped it from that sermon, then threw that sermon out, right? Then, I took this these commentary, this article written on this commentary about Exodus 32 and 34 being a parenthesis. Then I added the parentheses, the perpetual parentheses, when the sermon that originally used that phrase, they just dealt with idolatry, right? But they didn't really deal with 
they weren't dealing with Exodus. This talks about the parentheses, but not the perpetual idolatry part. So I put all of these concepts together. So they take 35. There's a part of me that wants to leave 35 out because it's not part of the parentheses. But I think it still will serve as a very important concept to maybe put forth and prove some of the arguments that I've made about what Moses was doing and what Moses was serving as within the parentheses, all right? So here's what they're going to say, all right? In this chapter, we see Moses and the Israelites commencing work on the tabernacle and its furnishings. I believe this provides us with a key to understanding how God could dwell in the midst of a sinful people. They believe 35 is the key in understanding how God can dwell in the midst of sinful people. They believe 35 provides the answer. I believe the answer has been provided in 32, 33, and 34. But I'm curious and what they think the answer is in 35. Right? Are they going to come to the same conclusion? If they come to the same conclusion I did, then I would love to talk to them and go, you missed the whole point. Everything Moses was doing in 32, 33, 34 was providing this as the answer. All right, but let's see what they have to say here. All right. Everybody ready? We have seen that God's character as revealed in 32, 11 through 14 and 34, 6 through 7. All right. Look at 32, 11 through 14 really quick. 32, 11 through 14. Oh, we're going to run out of time. All right. Does it reveal anything about God's character in 32, 11 through 14? Okay. Is anything else there about his character? Okay, but it shows basically kind of a mercy and a grace being shown there. Do you agree? Right? Okay, and then 34, 6 through 7 is the passage we just read a little while ago about being merciful, gracious, and forgiving. Okay, all right. So it says, we have seen that God's character is revealed in 32, 11 through 14 and 34, 6 through 7 and covenant with Abraham exhibited God's motivation and forgiving the Israelites and promising to be present with his people as they made their journey to the promised land. In other words, what they say is that what we have seen is God's reason for ultimately forgiving these people is what? His character and his covenant. His covenant and his character is why these people could be forgiven and why mercy could be extended. Okay, I I don't have a major issue with that. All right, so far so good. All right. God's motivation in forgiving the Israelites and promising to be present with his people as they made their journey to the promised land. We now see the mechanism. This is the word they use. The mechanism by which God was able to dwell in the midst of his people, if God, uh, so they're, they're saying we're getting ready to be given the mechanism and how God could do so, how God could do so. I think I've already shown you the mechanism, right? Focusing on the actual, uh, no, they're, they're showing, they're going to basically go the direction I've already gone. I think they're getting ready to go the same direction. The mechan- I've already given you the mechanism. What's the mechanism? A mediator, yeah, those th- that's the mechanism. God cannot dwell amongst sinful people without those things. Right? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Because even if you point to the altar, which part, which part of that does the altar fit in all those five things I gave you? What would the altar do? 
It's the atonement, right? Okay, there we go. Judgment, sacrifice, right? So it fits into those things that I've already given you. Okay, that's what I, I want to make sure you, you, you're starting to see that. It's starting to come together, all right? If God had to shield Moses' face with his hand, place him behind a rock, and display only his backside in order to draw near to Moses, how much more distance and separation was required for God to do abide in the midst of the stiff-necked people? Remember that veil that Moses wore that's the, se- that's the second time in the story. I was hoping someone would catch this. God already had to do what? Hide Moses from his glory. Right? Remember? Yeah, he had to, he could only see the backside. So once again, that demonstrates what is going, for God to dwell in the midst of the people, there's going to have to be what? Some separation, some shielding, a veil, as we say, right? Okay. That, I, I'm telling you, it's all right there in those chapters. It's all right there in those chapters, all right? Um, so, the mechanism which enabled God to draw near to his people and to dwell among them includes, they say, three essential elements. Here's the elements they're going to give. You ready? Number one, a mediator. Oh, wow. Imagine that. Right? A mediator to stand between God and Israel. Moses was the key to Israel's survival. I completely agree. But the priests also serve as a mediator role, putting some much needed distance between God and the nation. We got no problem, right? You need a mediator. Does the tabernacle provide a mediator? I will argue the entire tent is their mediator, right? The entire tent serves as mediation, it stands between. The people in God, right? Okay, so, so I, I, I cannot, oh, that, you see how, I, I think it's all, yes, yeah, someone say, ooh, somebody, right? I'm going to go, ooh, myself, okay, right? All right. Now, they add one that I didn't throw in, but I've kind of hinted at it. Barriers to keep some distance between God and the Israelites. Those who sinned greatly were removed by death. Those who were ceremonially unclean were placed outside the camp. Those were separation within the camp facilitated by the tabernacle. The priest could enter the holy place and, the, and only the high priest could enter the holy of holies. They say barriers. I'm just going to put, we're just going to put the veil and maybe just going to put the veil or the different courts because you got the inner court, you got the holy of holies, the inner court and the outer court. So we're just going to put the veil. We're just going to put the veil because I think it still accomplishes the same goal. All right. And so they've got, Mediator, barriers, we've got, and guess what do you think they're going to put down for the third? A sacrifice or a sacrificial system that had made it possible to atone uh, for the sin of the nation once a year. We have that in the judgment part. So now next to judgment, just put in parentheses, sacrificial system. And then atonement, put sacrificial system. Now, the reason we put two, why do you think I would put one called one judgment and one atonement? Why do you think I separated those as two different things? I know, I know other theological works won't do that, but of course I do everything differently, right? Because what do we do in this church? We don't learn theology. We do theology. So to do theology, I believe there needs to be a distinction. What is the distinction I am trying to make? I'm asking you to read my mind, okay? What is the distinction I'm trying to make between judgment and atonement? If you get this right, you get to go home. They put it all together, and I separated them. 
Okay, you're going the right direction. You're going the right direction. Judgment focuses on someone else being judged on my behalf. Satisfying God's wrath. What's another word we could put there? Propitiation. God's wrath always has to be satisfied. God can never just say what? You're good to go. Someone has to be judged. So the judgment part is the animal being killed. The atonement is separate from that because it's not so much focused on someone being judged on my behalf. It's talking about my sins have now been paid for, a covering, they've been covered. I separate those two things. And both things are taken care of where? In the tabernacle. The animals kill. God's wrath is being poured out upon it. But then the end result is a covering for my sin. I'm separating the two. They put them together. I think you have to separate them because if you don't, you miss that other part. part. Everyone always kind of misses that part. right? Well, Jesus died for me. Great. Because God, Jesus died. Everyone forgets this. Who did Jesus die for? He died to satisfy God. He died to satisfy the wrath of God because God demands judgment. He demands death. He had to satisfy God. That's why he's our propitiation. I'm going to keep saying that word, right? The, the tabernacle followed at a later time by Israel's temples were essential for God's presence among his people in addition to facilitating, facilitating God's presence among the Israelites. The tabernacle served as a prototype of heaven. Okay, we can get there, all right? Now, um, okay, we're just going to have to stop there because, man, there's a, a bunch here we want to get to. But now, now do you see how it all works? All right. The story of the Bible starts with God dwelling amongst men. They sinned because they put themselves and their desires before God, which is really idolatry. The Bible ends with God dwelling amongst men. In between that, we can call it a parenthetical. We can call it a parenthesis. And within that parenthesis, it's filled with sinful men worshiping themselves, exalting themselves at the expense of everything else. Right? So how can God over here, who was dwelling with man but could no longer because of their sin, ever get back to dwelling with them? Something has to happen. Something has to happen within that parentheses. What has to happen within that parentheses? God has to do something, not man. Please note, none of this man can do. God has to provide a mediator. God has to provide an advocate. God has to provide an intercessor. God has to find a way to judge sin on something other than me or I'm done. God has to do what? Provide an atonement, right? Because I got to more than just have judgment. I got to have something covering me, which is something more than just blood. I need righteousness, but that's a whole different stuff. And then, well, in the meantime, I need a veil between me and him or I'm, or I'm done, right? I'm, I'm, I'm finished, right? But there will come a time. And guess what? So God does all of that first. He does it first in a temporal way, in a material way, in a tent. Right? He does it in a tent. And that gives all of those elements are taken care of. And then God dwells amongst them in a kind of a temporal way. Right? Then from there it moves to the temple. All of those same things are still where? In the temple. But man continues to sin. In fact, what do they move inside the temple? 
They're idols. <laughs> They're idols. And then God's glory departs. Departs. Now then Christ comes. Now, now we have a tent to a, then the tabernacle in the temple is now found in Christ. Right? Then he provides all of those things that they provided, but in a permanent way. And then when we put our faith in him, then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And then really there, he is, in a sense, he's everything the tabernacle was sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's our mediator. He's our advocate. He's, he's every. He's our intercessor. He's our atonement. He's, our, he's everything. Right? Right, the veil is no longer needed in him. Because in him, I could look, I, in Christ, I can look upon the glory of God. I can enter into the throne of grace boldly because I'm in Christ. Yeah, the veil is no longer needed in him. Exactly. So, but, so in, in the parentheses in Exodus, everything in Moses shows you the why and the how of the tabernacle. And no study on the tabernacle ever covers that. I have no idea why. They just go right into white. Here's the furnishings. And hey, Shechem wood represents this. I don't know, just, just based off nothing. Hey, it's covered in gold. That's his deity. And what? Oh, there's his humanity. And everybody's like, ooh, ah. Oh. They think it's so cool. None of it's based on anything. At least what we've just now done for four hours is what? I've tried to show you scripturally all of those things are present. Now, what I, I need for the, for the assignment, what I want people to do is then go find everything in the tabernacle and show, oh, there's mediation happening in the tabernacle. There's me. Oh, there's intercession happening in the tabernacle. Oh, wait, there's judgment happening in the tabernacle. Right. Oh, there's an atonement. Oh, there's the veil. And it should be easy to find all of those things happening in the tabernacle. Find the verse and the, and the passage, and then there you have it. And then we know Christ does all of those things, right? I could make it a next, second part of the assignment. Maybe I'll do it later. Is then find out how Christ provides all of those things. He does all of those things. He intercedes. He's the mediator. He's the advocate. He's the propitiation. Right? He's that. He's, he's, I mean, all of it. It's just in those, the, those chapters that are in a parenthesis, it's all right there. That, that's the most fascinating thing in the world. But for some reason, everyone starts reading. Here's what they do. They start reading the first part about the tabernacle. Then they have that middle section. And then basically we preach the middle section is, stop being idolaters. Do better. Stop watching so much television. All right, now let's get back to the tabernacle. And they miss the entire point of those chapters. They miss the point. There you go. We started late. We finished later. Okay. <laughs> All, right. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, I hope we will read these chapters multiple times. We will give this serious thought that the one thing we should all leave here and be absolutely blown away by is that you found a way to dwell amongst sinful men. You did so for them, and you found a way that you will be able to dwell amongst us for all eternity and what you accomplished in your son and his finished work. Let us see the glory of that finished work 
and the temporal work you did amongst Israel in the tabernacle. Forgive us for missing this in the past. Help us better understand it in the present. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...